0: Welcome to this episode on Caring for the Carers on the Heartbeat of Humanity, the IFRC PS Center podcast for Red Cross and Red Crescent staff and volunteers working with mental health and psychosocial support. I'm Ian Susanna Kasha. I'm a Technical Advisor at the PS Center, where I should mention today's guest, Stephen Regal, is a roster member of long standing. I'll present Stephen Regal in a minute a bit more, but just to say right now that Stephen has years of experience in um, supporting people through adversity, and he has great insight into training humanitarians in uh, managing critical incidents. Today, we'll talk about support um, to carers such as frontline workers, healthcare workers, and Red Cross and Red Crescent staff and volunteers. Stephen, um, would you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself, your work, and and where you're working?
1: Um, Thank you. Um, I am the clinical lead for a traumatic stress service, which is called the Centre for Trauma Resilience and Growth. It's a very small service, specialist service, in what we have, uh, the mental health service here in Nottinghamshire. Uh, so I work for the NHS, for the National Health Service, which uh, many people have heard of, heard about. Um, it's uh, fairly iconic here in the UK. but struggling, as everybody is at the present. Uh, so I'm the clinical lead for that. Uh, it was set up uh, set it up uh, twenty one years ago now. Um, it's a small team. Uh, it's linked with the University of Nottingham. Um, Where we take trainees, psychology trainees, and we used to have counseling trainees and social work trainees as well. Uh, So, small specialist service. Um, So, our bread and butter work is to do assessment and therapy for victims of trauma that's across the board. So, as you said, you know, we're veterans, I've just come from a veterans meeting, Um, but also we see a lot of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, I'm always curious about the term asylum seeker because at one time everybody was called a refugee and now they appear to be called migrants. <laughs> so how the terminology changes affects how people are viewed in society sometimes. Um, my links with the, the Red Cross in general, it started with the Reference Centre um, in about 96 um, and uh, then has been continuing Um, over the years. Um, uh, So I've enjoyed many trips over to to Copenhagen, to the office there, and for trainings on psychosocial support, Uh, was involved with the development of the early manuals with other colleagues from other national societies. Um, And that's been a really uh, uh, it's been a really interesting and, and fruitful and rewarding part of my life over the last 20, more, more than 20 years now. Um, um, with the ICRC, uh, it was actually through uh, your, the current director, Nana, um, who, who introduced or asked me to work with the ICRC in their critical instant stress management program they were running at the time. Um, I don't know if that's still as it is, but that's the involvement, so that was over 10 years. And then in 2004, I was involved with the British Red Cross, where I have been a volunteer. Um, The programme in 2004, it was to help people affected by incidents abroad, um, which is now a formalised team. Uh, I've stepped back from that team now, but uh, that was only this year. Um, that team's still in existence and will still respond to overseas uh, events, but it's only there for UK nationals. It's uh, specific uh, with our Foreign Office, Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I better say the less is, <laughs> hopefully is more. <laughs> Unless you want to know right. anything else, that's me.
0: No, that's fine. Thank you very much. Um, interesting to hear about your very broad and varied background. And um, I'd like to to ask you what the current pandemics, um, what are the effects that you see that it has on on carers? And when I say carers, I'm talking about frontline workers. It can be healthcare professionals, and it can be a Red Cross, Red Crescent staff and volunteers. So, what are the characteristics of the impacts it's having on us?
1: That's a really good question, here. and I'll try to keep be succinct because my an answer to that can be very long. So, please stop me at any point. Um, I, I think, in terms of the frontline workers, because I've been involved, because I recently, in March of this year, I completed the three year project uh, with the British Red Cross, where I was an employee of the British Red Cross to do this project. Um, And there was a variety of activities that came our way when the pandemic came on. So that was supporting, so it could have been from supporting frontline nurses. It was done virtually, so people in ICU. Um, there were people who were involved, certainly here in the UK, um, who were managing the uh, the mortuaries. For example, the death rates were so high, and these were interesting. The reason we got involved in the support there was because the the, the entertainment industry had shut down, so people weren't going to concerts and. Um, Outdoor gatherings, which you know, music festivals, etc., and the companies who used to manage those were drafted in to manage the mortuary services. You know, the setting up because they had equipment and they could organise big events. So it was obviously sport for those members of staff. Many of them were young, working remotely, and having to do some quite difficult work. There was also the Red Cross volunteers um, and staff. Um, The impact, I think, was, I think, due to the intensity and the very concentrated time that people were having to spend. Because I don't think, well, we know that the pandemic has touched everybody in some way. So whether people became affected by becoming ill, but not seriously ill. But everybody knew people who had been become ill. Some people knew people who had died, sadly. Um, and one of the things I, I noticed was that in terms of the Red Cross volunteers, and I suspect that would be for the NGOs who were doing this work, is that the normal connections weren't there. The going into the office, the time to see people, the spontaneity of that human connection, um, inevitably was uh, something that people missed, I think, over, over the time. And so everybody was working from home, apart from frontline services, and the Red Cross were doing, in this country, as I imagine everywhere else, was doing a lot in terms of frontline services support, whether it was delivering food, befriending, the helpline, uh, whatever it was. Um, in terms of the frontline nursing staff, and I think it became obvious as time went on, is that clearly people weren't prepared for the intensity of the experience. If you work in an ICU setting, you expect or it's not unexpected, of course, by the nature of the work, for people to die in ICU because they're clearly very seriously ill or injured. But for many people, many of those teams, it was the volume. Um, I think the volume made a significant difference. And the one interesting... Uh, there was much in the academic literature at the time about moral injury uh, on staff. And this came from a military perspective um, because they tried to, or the, there was an attempt to or link healthcare workers and social care workers with the, the moral injury that you might have experienced in a military setting in warfare, whereby... You might be, for example, asked be asked to do things that would be challenging to your moral code. Um, so I, I guess in a military setting, one can see that it'd be very common in peacekeepers, where the rules of engagement are so different and you may have to stand by and let things happen that under normal circumstances you wouldn't. Uh, Shrebrinitsa is a classic example of that. Um so there was an attempt. I, I'm not. I wasn't convinced by the argument. I could see the direction of travel in terms of the the sense of that was going. But uh, I certainly felt that when you talk to people here, they felt that they'd, they'd been moral injury for many years because of the funding and all that sort of stuff that was going on. Um, but I guess it was the intensity. It was the volume it was having to work in isolation where previously you didn't um it was those kind of stressors that were i guess the things that people weren't familiar with um and many people who do uh, work in healthcare settings or work for um some you know an organization of like the red cross or any other organization like that It's about that connection. It's about that human experience, helping people. And exactly, if I
0: may ask you, just because you're talking about the the social isolation that was also part of the pandemic, and when you can't have that social support that you're used to having, how does it in general impact your um, psychosocial well-being and your mental health? So what did you see?
1: I think what happens is people internalize more um so at one time where you could have a conversation with somebody over you know a a cup of coffee in a a room or that informal conversation on the way to the car or um, in those kind of circumstances people ended up having to internalize things more people were many people working from home or as i would call it they ended up living at work um uh, because and I certainly found it uh, I know that I had to carry on my my NHS work my trauma center work this became the trauma center mm. um but as soon as I could I went back into working in a face-to-face level um because it was something that I wasn't suited to um and I guess you know, there are some people, it, it found that they fitted into, they slipped into it quite easily, and other people struggled with it. So I think in answer to your question, I think people internalised more. Uh, the focus, I think, even on everything, whether it was in social media, whether it was in the mainstream media or other forms of media, was on, was on death, dying. Um, there was no good news. <laughs> For a long while.
0: Uh, well, the they've been thing, scarce. They yeah, are scarce at the moment, too.
1: Absolutely. The other thing I think affected people was the uncertainty.
0: And, and what does uncertainty do to us, as you know, in general terms?
1: I, I think as human beings, we always want an answer, don't we? We want to know why. We want to know how long, you know, if something's going to happen, how long will, will this continue? Uh, we, earn, we yearn for predictability of some sort.
0: To be able to forecast and see what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, and I, I was lis- that's right. And I was listening to some somebody in a radio discussion about what are often described as conspiracy theories. You know, and one of the reasons given was that was that'll give you an answer mm-hmm. for something that you might not find elsewhere um whether or not that's right I don't know but it kind of makes some sense to to me I think so as human beings we want an answer we want predictability and I think what I think of in in answer to your question was that there is that notion uh, of shattered assumptions whereby you know we all as human beings have those three basic assumptions about the world which is a sense of Personal and vulnerability. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're going to be okay. We don't voice it, but it's there. Right. The second thing is that the world is meaningful and comprehensible. It makes sense. And on a day-to-day level, it means that as human beings, we have a sense of cont- continuity and order to our lives. We have connections with family, friends, work, right? Um, our communities, you know, uh, churches, whatever it is. And the last of those is a sense of, um, I would guess, a positive sense of self in the world. And I think what the pandemic did was, was shake, shake, shook or shattered that for many people. Mm. For many people, their basic assumptions about the world were turned upside down.
0: Right, and you had to make a new meaning. And I'd like to backtrack a bit to something you said, because I heard you say... Um somewhere or right that um, during this pandemic, it's important that we um, in psychosocial support mental health, help people not to go over what if, what if, what if I had not gone out, what if I had stayed at home, what if I had not washed hands, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So we keep mulling over these what ifs, um, and you say instead we should go to what is? And I thought that was, very, that was very interesting. Could you talk about that a bit? Because it relates to what you were just saying, that we need to live with these uncertainties. What is?
1: Yeah. Um, that's an also an interesting one. I, I think it, it, many, many years ago, um, in my clinical work, I, I, was, I was working with a man who who'd had a very serious uh, accident, and he'd lost his leg. Um, in it had to be amputated and there was other problems. And his main trauma, which might seem strange to listeners and viewers, is that it wasn't about, the trauma wasn't him losing his leg. it was the pain that he went through in hospital. There was all sorts of problems. The hospital situation was a trauma for him. And he said to me once, you know, he said, I've learned, he said, there's no what-ifs, there's only what-is. And he said that the what-ifs are the route to hell, you know. And it really, really stayed with me because I'd heard so many people say that. And we had a really interesting discussion about that. And and I thought, I said to him, I'm going to steal that, you know. Um, And so now I say to people, because, you know, even in a clinical setting, I say if there was a what-if, you wouldn't be sat here in front of me. You know, um, and as you say, what if we'd not got on that holiday? What if we'd not, what if we'd taken the train and not driven to the destination? What if we'd have travelled home sooner? And you could see it with grief and loss in the pandemic. You know, the what ifs were rife. You know, what if I'd spent more time with my father? What I'd spent more time with the family? You know, because I think there's been numerous stories of how people's experience of this illness has changed and shaped their thinking about their world you know and I guess that's when you know we've talking earlier and informally about things like post-traumatic growth and resilience and those are the kind of things that lead to that for for many people so I guess that that is for me trying to shift and it, I've seen the what ifs so often amongst people who are first responders in the emergency settings, because the natural mindset is we must rescue, we must save, we must protect. And because the world is not predictable, the world is a a place that's constantly changing and shifting in all sorts of ways, is that the first responders and the volunteers, whoever they might be, we cannot control that. Yeah. And the what-ifs come up so often amongst emergency services. Right. Uh, it's a really common But that leads me to,
0: yeah, yeah. that's, that's a very good um, point to go into some more about support for the carers. So what? there's been a lot of talk about we need to support the carers, it's come to the fore, it's so important, blah, blah, blah. Yet it seems so difficult, um, too little is done. We all agree on that. Um, so what are good ways of supporting staff and volunteers? And now we focus on staff and volunteers of the Red Cross, Red Crescent. What what, what do you think?
1: Um, I may give you a predictable answer from me. I, I've been a, involved in peer support amongst first responders and, mm-hmm. and in other settings for a very long time. And many people think you know, aren't aware that the idea of peer support amongst first responders and groups who do very challenging work has been around for over three or three, four decades. And in many countries, in terms of first responders, whether it's the police, the fire service, and of course the military now, they were developing this, the idea of peer support, in other words, people who do the same jobs, inhabit the same world, uh, have the same experiences. Supporting each other is a really, what well, I would say, cost-effective is one way, but it's also a really useful way of maintaining and, and enhancing resilience, I think, amongst mm. people who do that work. and the But, of course most people need some sort of training, some sort of education around what that means to support colleagues. So, you know, very simple things like, uh, you know, what makes a good peer supporter, what qualities are there? Um, Teaching people about boundaries, about safety, respect. Um, And also, you know, trying to, I, when I, do any training in peer support, I, I have a reading list that I give to people. And that reading list is not full of academic papers. It's about books that are accessible. So things, books like uh, William Goldman's Emotional Intelligence. Mm. Um, <laughs> he um, was a
0: big hero of mine when <laughs> yeah. when, when that book came out. Yeah.
1: yeah. So things like this, because about, it's about our emotional thinking. Right. You know uh so, so it's that's all about teaching people. these
0: skills yeah
1: yeah and I think you can you can't I think can you teach compassion there are people who say you can I'm I don't I know there
0: studies, there's studies saying that you can do that through literature actually they train yeah. doctors um, medical students to to read books um and and discuss them and and they develop a more compassionate attitude that's interesting yeah yeah translate
1: in with what you're saying yeah you know I think you know this idea, and I read something recently which is very interesting, which is the idea of that empathy is good, but we need to train our compassion more. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and, and this was this um, and and
0: why why is that? What how would you distinguish? Just
1: in compassion is proactive, it's active, it's more engaged right. with somebody who's trying. And the the experiment came about from with Matthew Rickard, who's a Buddhist monk, but also he's a, <laughs> he has a PhD in cellular biology. So he's not just any ordinary Buddhist monk, you know. So, But he's written extensively about altruism uh, uh, and kindness and mindfulness, um, but also about the science of this. And uh, one of the things that he was involved in an experiment with an Austrian um, a neurologist called Tania Singer. And um, the idea was that she asked him, showed him a film about children in an orphanage in Romania. And she asked him to think, because he was so very good at mindfulness, and to really think about their plight and how it affected them. And they stuck him in a scanner. And, of course, bits of his head lit up as these things often do that to me that's interesting but for the 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 interesting thing was afterwards he was a complete wreck Um, and they did other experiments which demonstrated this with people but what they did was also did the same thing again but asked him to think much more about how he could help those children Mm. what could he do what could he put in place, what sort of things could he imagine happening if those things were?
0: But wouldn't you say that's more of a way into resilience because it's all about – resilience is is not about who you are, what you're born with. It's also about how you act. It's it's choices you make. Like what can you do in my mind?
1: Yeah, it's, it's about what you can do, but also it's about – and this is where the peer support comes in, I think. Peer support is very good for enhancing resilience – because exactly, people learn yeah. from each other. But just briefly coming back to Matty Ricard, when mm-hmm. he was put into the scanner again with this compassion focus, he was a completely different emotional response.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: You know, and the idea is also the messages, and this was also mentioned in um, Rutger Bergman's book, Humankind, um, which came out and, interestingly early last year. And, so, and his phrase, I'll steal it from him, was, temper your empathy and train your compassion
0: all right okay good advice for us here
1: yeah you know and i I think that idea that compassion is proactive it's engaged you know and i think that's what Mm -hmm. often we do in 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 situations like volunteers and workers in the red cross setting you know that that focus on helping others for being active proactive
0: There's another thing I'd like to ask you about um, how we support our staff and volunteers after crisis events because I've also heard you say that we don't intervene or come to support quickly enough. We wait too long. But if we have good peer support systems, when should we, what should we do uh, if we're managers after a crisis event for our staff and volunteers?
1: I think – I'll try and give you as succinct answer as possible. I think if you have good systems in place for that early support where people understand, recognize and know what's in place, how to access it, when to access it and that they have permission to access it, that's really important because I think a lot of organizations are very good at talking the talk, but when it comes to, when it comes to walking the walk, they tend to stutter and stumble and step aside for a while. Um, So I think, you know, I always say to people, if you want a really good peer support programme, it has to be top-down encouraged, you know, that the organisation has to say, yes, we agree with this, we support it, and we will feed it. Um, We will give it encouragement and support. Because I think if it doesn't, if that top-down recognition doesn't come, then it will start to crumble. Because what you get is very keen, enthusiastic, generous compassion at people who are at the ground level who will do that and very soon they will burn out hmm. because they're not getting that support from above. You know, so I think, you know, this is a really, those two things like, yes, you need people at the ground level, you need top-down support and really good foundation in the middle. Yeah, you need some really, really taste, tasty jam in the sandwich. Yeah, know. right.
0: Um, Interesting enough, when we do the, the trainings, um, the longer trainings, we, we pair people up and they have discussions in the morning. They have questions that they go over and each afternoon when we end the training. And it's one of the things that comes up high, most highly rated in the training and some stay in touch several years after so it, it it is really a very good system to to support
1: and I think small things make such a difference mm. you know um, I know in my own personal experience and from my colleagues experience that you know the manager who who shows up or who comes to see you not mm-hmm. because they were to find something's wrong but just to say how are you you know, um, turns up with a, you know, with a cake or a box of chocolates. Uh, Not that they do that very often, but, you know, so it is very valued because it's somebody saying, I'm just here and I just want to see how you are. And I think sometimes, you know, we need, that's more of it. I think in some respects of people through the pandemic, because everybody talks in very negative experiences through the pandemic, or that's what tends to come to the fore. But I also think there was a lot of, positive things that happened, you know, people started to look out for each other, care the communities came together, you know, um, and one of the academics here, Richard Bentol, who's a professor at the uh, University of Sheffield, did some studies on looking at people's mental health. And he wrote an interesting article in, in the... One of the, you know, our national newspapers, The Guardian, about what people described as a tsunami of mental health. And he said, but we're not sure that that's the case. Um, and I, you know, you have to be careful. I mean, sometimes, about it, but I agreed with him um, because he said, if we say it, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy in some ways. You know, because I think people who did experience mental health problems other than those who already had mental health difficulties and were exacerbated by the isolation, loneliness, lack of contact, etc., <clears throat> would have been people who might have experienced that st- a stressor at some point other than the pandemic. It was just the pandemic happened to be the one that was there for them. So, I mean, yes, things did, I mean, for example, the suicide levels did not go up.
0: In some countries, in some it did. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So um, the predictions weren't as clear cut as people. That's thought. right.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But and and um, as a final question, I think I'd like to go back to or or continue um, along the road to resilience, because what what other things could you mention that are some of the factors that could build resilient teams?
1: often when you look at definitions of resilience or people often talk about thinking people bouncing back, mm-hmm. I would prefer to see resilience in terms of adaptability mm-hmm. to change, to adversity. And I think you find that where that's possible, if you look at, you know, many of the, you know, much of the developing world, you know, the resilience is is almost part of the DNA because, you know, if you you have to do certain things, you know, that you can't, in in the West, there are often um, mechanisms to support people um, through, you know, either, you know, like the furlough system, for example, which was here in the UK, people were paid so that they could protect, and that was a great scheme. But that wouldn't have happened in many other countries. And so people have to do what they have to do in order to stay alive, feed the families, you know, to, to survive. So I think resilience is much more about adapting to the environment because I always think about, you know, if you go out on, the, uh, on moorland, whether it's in Scotland or, you know, wherever, and you'd be in the most barren landscape and you'll see a tree And actually, this tree will be gnarled and bent, um, but it'll be flourishing. It has berries, beautiful leaves, the bark's rich and solid. And when it's done over the decades and generations, it's adapted to that environment. You know, Um, and if you think about, you know, like in the tsunami, all the very firm trees, all the palms that stood on were all gone. They were just ripped up, you know. So I think the idea, for me, resilience is about adaptability uh, to adversity um, and that ability to, to, to shift and respond to different stresses. And not everybody has that, you know. Um, and does it come from background, parents, um, the, you know, having to survive? <laughs> But some of it
0: seems to link to what you just talked about when you say it's all about changing your perspective to what is, because yeah. that's about the adaptability. So how yeah. can we promote that thinking within teams?
1: For me, I would say um, people often talk about good supervision and good management. It's about how we care for people. I would also go for um, building good peer support programs. Um, and uh, good peer support programs will obviously talk about resilience because the one that we did you know in the British Red Cross one of the activities was a a discussion of resilience and what makes resilience and how do you define it Um, you know because resilience for a firefighter would be different for a young woman with a family in, in, in Africa somewhere so this idea of resilience does not have a universal Uh, meaning but I think certainly good management good supervision good peer support programs which are um, are are nurtured they have to be nurtured
0: and include training that you mentioned
1: before yeah I think training is important it doesn't have to be very um, very elaborate training but training which gives people good basic principles and but the organization, any organization, if they don't support those kind of initiatives, that's when the resilience starts to, to wane. So yes, I believe you can be, build resilience. Um, you can build resilience. And, and, and we know that social support, whether it's in an organizational setting or in any other setting, that it's the research has shown that it's protective. It's a protective factor. So we have evidence. So it's not like we'd be doing anything that isn't evidence-based, you know. Um, So I think social support within an organisational setting, peer support, which is that social support, is something that really can build resilience in individuals and in teams.
0: Great. That's a beautiful way to, to end the podcast. And to sum up, we went over what has uh, how, how people have in the front line has been affected by the pandemic. We touched upon resilience, how to build resilient teams, um, and had some tips from you, from Stephen, on what we can do ourselves to move from a what-if to a what-is kind of thinking, which I think was very useful. And... Um, Let's, po- let's also um, promise our listeners that we will bring a reading list because you've mentioned different authors and we will bring that list um, along with the podcast when we publish it. So thank you very much for being with us today. That was lovely.
1: Thank you. It's been lovely to see you. Um, yeah, You too. <laughs> and, uh, and to talk with you. And thank-, thank you. It's been a privilege to be invited to do this.
0: Well, we'll have you back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The Heartbeat of Humanity, the PS Center's podcast for staff and volunteers in the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, working with mental health and psychosocial support. Go to our website, pscenter.org, for more materials, for guidance notes, um, all kinds of things that you, that you need for your mental health and psychosocial support work, and also sign
1: up for our newsletter. Remember, mental health matters.